All right, Book of Romans. We're going to be there just for a couple of seconds. Romans chapter 5. Well, hopefully we'll be here for a couple of seconds. If the review goes bad, then no promises. All right, Romans chapter 5. Yeah, pull up the notes. Okay, Romans chapter 5. We have been working on Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and we're not making a lot of progress, are we? Because we are in what some call the most difficult section in the entire book, even though many commentaries and Bible study guides just skip it, and many sermons, when churches are preaching through the book of Romans, for some weird reason, I guess you can knock it out in one sermon. I don't know how that's humanly possible unless you don't care to tell your people all the problems with this section. But there's some major problems here, and we've started trying to work through this. The first verse is obviously in this section is verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Let's read it. Uh, and if you're using the Bible Memory app, it's one of the verses to memorize. All right, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All right? And where do the problems begin in this verse? Remember, we spent two sermons on it. Where do the problems begin in this verse? For all that, right? For all that have sinned, right? Or for for that all have sinned, right? Everybody remember that part? Remember the problems? What is that referring to? Is that referring to, and I'm like, let me go back through this. Okay, yeah, as one man, sin entered into the world. Nobody has a problem with that. Everybody knows who the one man is, right? Adam, okay? Adam is held responsible for what happened in the garden, okay? Now, we could spend a lot of time on that, but that's not the goal right now, okay? So, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, all right? So, one man uh, sins, that enters into the world. Then death follows it, and death by sin. So, death passed upon all men. For that, all have sinned, okay? All have sinned in what way? Remember, we looked at all we looked at all the different views. What, remember the different views we looked at? We looked at the view from Pelagius. We looked at the view from Augustine. We looked at the view from Calvin, and then Douglas, whatever his last name is, Moo. Okay, uh, we lo- we looked at uh, all of these different perspectives. Can, does everyone agree on what this refers to? No. Okay, but th- this is what we know. This is very important. For for that all have sinned. Okay. Well, wait a minute. Did we, we, did we sin? Is it referring to our sin? If it's referring to the sin that you commit and the sin I commit, we have a problem. And what's the problem? Everyone dies, correct? People die even as an infant, as a newborn. Well, have they committed a sin? We would argue no. Not a practical sin, right? That they carried out. They don't even have a conscience of really understanding anything yet, right? So, okay, so then wait a minute. But they, but they die. So if they die, they somehow, somehow have to be associated with what? Sin. So how could they be associated with sin? And so we looked at some possible options, right? How, uh, what did Augustine uh, accredit this to? Okay, all right, original sin, right? Guilty, but we're guilty how? 
in Adam. That's the sin that Augustine, the emphasis was on, we're guilty in Adam. Make sure we understand that. Adam sinned. Who, who committed that sin? The, uh, yeah, Adam committed it, but somehow Augustine is arguing that we all are guilty of that sin. All right? And so therefore, because we're all guilty in Adam's sin, then what can happen? And therefore, death can happen to anyone and everyone, even a child. Which means the child is not innocent. There's no way to then make it... You can't make the argument that the child is innocent if the child is dying. If the child is dying, the child is not innocent. Okay, guilty in Adam, all right? And is Adam's guilt enough to condemn us? Yes, it is. All right. Calvin wanted to focus on a different aspect. What did he want to focus on? A sinful nature that we have all sinned in the fact that everyone born possesses a sinful nature. Everybody remember that? Okay, so... That, that is very critical, and just make sure we understand that, that where all the problems begin is in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We'll make sure we all realize where it begins. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For that all have sinned. Some translates it, because all have sinned. Well, what does that mean, all have sinned? Sinned in what way? Pelagius would say, in what way? Your own practical sin. Well, he can't explain the death of what? Children, okay? So that's the, pro- that's the problem, okay? So make sure we understand where the problem is. We have to understand it. So here's what we're going to do. We did a lot of explaining it last week. I think we did pretty good. But today we're going to back up and we're going to expand to a more a broad doctrinal theological study on the subject of sin. We're gonna, basically, this is going to be a study on the doctrine of sin, a, the- a theology lesson on the subject of sin. And we're going to do our best to hopefully make some sense of it so that we truly understand it. Does that, does that make sense? Here are some questions we're going to work on. What is sin? What is sin? Where did it come from? Do we inherit a sinful nature from Adam? Do we inherit guilt from Adam? We're going to look at it from a, a theological perspective. We're going, to be, uh, we're going to be using a lot of Grudem systematic theology to work on this, since it's easy to, to, to work through. All right, so what is sin? Where did it come from? Do we inherit a sinful nature from Adam? Do we inherit guilt from Adam? I do not want to just go flying past Romans 5.12. We've got to get Romans 5.12 right. In fact, I, I think if we don't get this right, this is how critical this is. We get this wrong, the whole book of Romans is messed up. That's simple. We're going, to mis- we're going to misinterpret the whole book of Romans. In fact, I think we get this messed up. We can't even deal with the, very, the controversy that was in Romans 2.6. That I guess every pastor in the world thinks isn't a problem, but it's a massive problem. And we spent, what? At least a month, maybe longer, on trying to fix that problem. And in, but everyone says this is the most difficult uh, section. If this is the most difficult section, then we've got to even spend longer. So we're going to back up and do that. All right, so here we go. All right, let's start with the definition of sin. Let's start with the definition of sin. All right, the definition of sin. Uh, The history of the human race, as presented in Scripture, is primarily a history of man and a state of sin and rebellion against God and of God's plan of redemption to bring man back to himself. 
right? I would agree that if you read the Bible, basically you're seeing the history of the human race in a state of sin. Agreed? In fact, it shows up pretty quick. Where? Genesis 3. (laughs) That's why we're studying that in Sunday school. See the connection, right? So from Genesis 3 all the way to the book of Revelation, it's the history of man and a state of sin and rebellion against God and God's plan of redemption. That's really the Bible. It's a history of man and a state of sin. Well, if that whole Bible is about man in a state of sin, then our understanding of it would be critical, or we can't understand what? The whole, we can't, yeah, we cannot, we can't understand any of the Bible. The whole Bible becomes a closed book to us. So we definitely need to make sure we have a right understanding of this. So, I would argue that not only is it appropriate, it's necessary that we understand sin and we understand how it works, where it came from, and everything about it. So, let's define sin. You ready? Here's a definition of sin. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God and act attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in what three ways? Act, attitude, or nature. Act, attitude, or nature. Now, what is critical about this definition? What are some of the key points that jump out at you about this definition? Well, it deals with our uh, relation to the moral law. Okay, that's important, right? That's distinguishing it from what we would classify. Now, I know not all theologies do this, but we, we would classify the civil and ceremonial law, right? And we don't, we, we're not applying that to ourselves. Would everyone understand that? Some theologies try to, but that becomes a... If you don't draw some distinction, uh, I don't know what you do. The Bible becomes a, a garbled mess at that point. You have to draw some kind of distinction. So we're focusing on the moral law. And then what, what's another thing that should jump out at you? Okay, what, and what's so, what's so critical about those three ways? Everyone got, everyone, 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 no one has a problem with the first one, right? Act. External action, boom. Everybody's got that one. Everybody's ready, everyone's ready to jump on someone for an external action, right? I mean, man, we will stone the heathen if it's an external action. But what's just, what, what is another part of sin? Attitude. Attitude. That's internal. So whether you've ever committed the external, the internal can make you just as guilty as the person who committed the external. That's hard to know how to even wrap our minds. Listen, let's be honest. That is beyond our capability really to wrap our mind around and to process. It really is. Okay? We, don't, we, don't, we don't operate that way. Right? We don't operate that way. You got the twins. One of the twins goes out and commits the external act, right? We find her under the bridge in North First, you know, drunk with a heroin needle in her arm, right? And, we're, and mom and dad's pretty upset. 
But the other one is sitting there going, I wanted to do the same thing. You don't care that the one wanted to do the same thing because you'll be like, at least you didn't do it. Right? Now, from a human standpoint, that makes perfect sense. Hey, I'm glad you wanted to do it, but you didn't do it. (laughs) Woo! Your sister's an idiot. Spiritually... That, does that even make sense to us? It, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. We we're like, no, that that doesn't. No, it doesn't work. And the, because who always gets the attention? The one committing the external act, and then everyone sits around bragging about how they've never would never do such a thing. Never, never, never. Okay, well, congratulations. You're more godly than everyone else. But this goes. This goes after it. What else? And then the third part here that's very controversial in some parts of Christianity. What's the third thing there? Oh, boy. Nature. Now, where where does that come from? Now, we're we're going to... Our current understanding would be that applies to what? The very essence of who we are. We don't commit the act, and we don't have the attitude or the desire for it uh, without the nature. And that means we're guilty. And what we, well, we'll put it this way. Well, yeah, if we're going to define sin as including the nature, then that makes us what? Guilty before we ever commit an act or ever think of anything. Even before, even before we have an attitude or commit an act, we are guilty. Now, why is this so critical? If this definition is true, listen to me. If this definition is true, all the attempts to read Romans and somehow get around a justification by grace alone through faith alone, you can't do that if this is the correct understanding of sin. If I'm guilty in my act, I can be guilty in an attitude, and I'm guilty in my nature, then that means I'm incapable of ever, under any circumstances, justifying myself or even cooperating with the grace of God long enough to even get me to purgatory, much less heaven. I was discussing with some Catholics last night on uh, imitation of Christ, and we were focused on the last paragraph of chapter one of book one. And, you know, man, I'm just like, you know, they're dropping 900, you know, quotations from uh, the catechism on me. And I'm like, yeah, and your 9,000 uh, you know, quotes from the catechism proves that no, no, you're, none of us are getting to heaven. We're all going to hell because in the, in the first, in the end of that first paragraph in chapter one of the imitation of Christ, he mentions about destroying or, or, or basically losing the grace of God. That our sin can cause us to destroy and lose the grace of God. And the catechism speaks of this. We can literally destroy the grace of God by committing a mortal sin. We figure out what a mortal sin is. Now, are you going to focus on the mortal sin as only... Now, here's the thing. If you're going to focus on a mortal sin, are you only focused on... An, is, to be a mortal sin, it, only ha, it can only be an external act? Well, then, then, so mortal sins are only external acts, but what's the internal part? And what's the nature? Like, like how do you work that? It, it just makes no... Like, that's why their formula becomes so convoluted at some point. It's like, okay, well, I can give, commit a mortal, but then I can possibly get a mortal back through, through penance, and, and then i got to do this, and i got to do that. It's like, I, no, the nature is still there. So does the nature make you guilty? 
does the attitude make you guilty? Well, if we define sin the way we just defined it, then guess what makes us guilty? Action, attitude, and nature. Guess what that means? You're in a perpetual state of what? Guilt. Or sin. So when Christians talk about, well, you know, if you become a Christian, you can overcome sin. I can't overcome all of that. Can't overcome my nature. Unless you're going to say, well, you get a new nature. Well, then if my new nature, do you mean I eradicate the old nature? Like, like you know, Christians, Christians have to really work our, our way through this. So this is a very important uh, definition. Grudem says this about the, this, this definition. Sin is here defined in relation to God and his moral law. Sin includes not only individual acts, such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. We see this already in the Ten Commandments, which not only prohibits sinful actions, but also wrong attitudes. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. So even the Ten Commandments goes with just, sometimes we focus on the Ten Commandments as just being the external act. When you're going after coveting, that's internal. So here God uh, specifies that a desire to steal or to commit adultery is also sin in his sight. The Sermon on the Mount also prohibits sinful attitudes such as anger or lust. Paul lists attitudes such as jealousy, anger, and selfishness as those things that are works of the flesh opposed to the desires of the Spirit. Therefore, a life that is pleasing to God... is. is one that has moral purity, not only in action, but also in desires of heart. In fact, the greatest commandment of all requires that our heart be filled with an attitude of love for God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, if I just stop right there, what should be the conclusion of that paragraph? None of us will ever please God. Period. We're never going to pull that off. Never. Your, your, your whole essence should be filled with a love for God and love for others. You're never, gonna, you're never going to pull it off. You're never going to pull it off. And, and, and I don't know why Christians sometimes act like that we... It's like, it's just this weird thing. Like, hey, you can do all of these things wrong and that's okay. Well, no, it's not okay. You're guilty. Like, you're over there condemning this person for that horrible act. Well, look at yourself. You're guilty in about 500,000 different ways. Uh, The definition of sin given above specifies that sin is a failure to conform to God's moral law, not only in action and in attitude, but also in our moral nature. Our very nature, the internal character that is the essence of who we are as persons, can also be sinful. Before we are redeemed by Christ, not only did we do sinful acts and have sinful attitudes, but we were also sinners by nature. That's why uh, Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Ephesians 2, 3, we were by nature children of wrath. That's Ephesians 2, 3. By nature, we're the children of wrath. Even while asleep, an unbeliever, though not committing sinful actions or actively nurturing sinful attitudes, is still a sinner in God's sight. He has a sinful nature that does not conform to the moral law. Right? So please note, our nature 
doesn't even conform to God's law. Our nature doesn't even conform. That puts us in a pretty bad situation. All right? Agreed? All right. Um, yeah. And he gets into a whole discussion of how other people describe it, but we'll, we'll skip that. All right? Um, finally, we should note uh, that this definition emphasizes the seriousness of sin. Right? What I want to do is just emphasize not only the seriousness of it, I want you to emphasize the reality of it to such a point that you realize something else is going to have to help you with it. Because any attempt you have, even if you're able to stop the, even if you're able to stop the action, you're going to have a very hard time trying to control the attitude. And even if you're able to get the action and attitude under control, the nature is still there. So you're perpetually in a state of sin. Perpetually. And I, don't, I obviously don't believe, well, any Christian out there who tries to teach that you, the, the sinful nature goes away is out of their mind. I mean, they're, well, they're liars. I mean, they're just liars to pretend that in any way, shape, or form. It's not the case. And, and many Christians who don't deny the sinful nature, they, they don't deny the reality of the sinful nature in a Christian. They talk about like, hey, you become a Christian and you can have victory over this and victory and victory. And they talk all this big game about victory. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Sinful nature is still there. So what do you, and I think we've all been, we've probably in our Christian life, if you, probably when you're a young Christian, you, you get kind of fed that, that game. Hey, you're going to become a Christian. You know, and remember the verse that everyone quotes? If anyone's in Christ, new creature, behold, all things, all things have become new. And, and of course they miss, I complete, that is a complete oh, mishandling of that verse. Because if that verse is true, then nobody should do what? And so when you're a young Christian, you're trying to, aren't you trying to figure that out as a young Christian? You're like, okay, whoa, okay, oh, man, I got the power, I got victory, I'm a new creature, old things are gone, and then, oh man, alive, I keep sinning. I keep sinning, I keep sinning, I keep sinning. And at some point, that goes from frustration to discouragement, and it can lead to a point where you just like, well, clearly, Christianity's not real. And the church leads people to that despair. Because I, mean, I wish I wish I could look at everybody and say just be perfect, and then actually do it. But it's not. All right. So where did sin come from? All right. How did it come? So so we go from the definition to the origin. Let's go to the origin of sin. Let's go to the origin of sin. All right. Oh boy. All right, man. There's some major philosophical problems with this. So we'll struggle with this for a second, and we'll try to move on. Okay, I want to get to some other issues here, but we'll, let's deal with the origin at least briefly. All right? This is the way Grudem puts it. Where did sin come from? How did sin, how did sin come into the universe? First, oh boy, I'm, I, I'm glad I'm not in a philosophy class and reading this. Okay, this works, in a, this works in a seminary classroom because everyone's like, whatever that Bible says is right. Okay, that's just the way, you know, we don't question anything. But uh, philosophy class would be like, what are you talking about, all right? So let's get this standard Christian answer out of the way, uh, and then I'll show you all the problems with this, because, man, I have a hard time here. All right, how did it come into the universe? First, we must be clear, we must clearly affirm that God himself did not sin, and God is not to be blamed for sin. 
It was man who sinned. It was angels who sinned. And in both cases, they did so by willful, voluntary choice. To blame God for sin would be, a, would be blasphemy against the character of God. His work is perfect for all his ways are, are, just, are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Uh, just and right is he. That's a reference from Deuteronomy 32. Abraham asked, with truth and force in his words, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Genesis chapter 18. Okay, and they, they quote some other scriptures here, talking about how God basically is without wrong, God is without sin, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. All right, now, let's stop right there. That all sounds good. And Christians will say, and that's usually how it's preached in a church, and everybody sits in the pew and says, Amen. I don't know why no one in the pew raises their hand and goes, but wait a minute here. I got, I got a problem. I got a problem here. Right? So let's just make sure I've stabbed. I, I did uh, the other day, someone called, uh, and I did a podcast on this. Was he five years old, seven years old? He called the Christian radio station. It was kind of like, uh, if God knew Satan was going to do bad, then why did he create him? Now, even seven-year-olds can figure that out. If a seven-year-old can figure that out, I don't know why people sitting in pews as adults can't figure this out. There's a major theological problem here, right? Or at least a philosophical problem. So let's make sure we at least go through this, all right? Basic facts about God. God is what? All-powerful. Second basic truth about God, God is all-knowing. All right. And God is present in all places at all times. All right. Those are three basic truths of God. All right. So God comes along. He creates an angelic being that we refer to as Satan, sometimes referred to as Lucifer, if you want to get into the whole argument about the Latin there. Okay, Lucifer, Satan, the devil. Right? At this point, he's a beautiful angel. That's the way we tell the story. Everything's wonderful. Everything's great. Now, when God created him, what do we absolutely know theologically to be true? He knew what Satan was going to do before he ever created him. Agreed? All right. Unless you say God doesn't know. And this is where open theism comes in and creates all kinds of problems. So he knows. Now, Satan rebels. At the very moment of his rebellion, what does God have the ability to do? He has the ability to do it because he's all-powerful. Right? In some ways, he should have done it because God is holy. He doesn't. Why not? Why create him? Why not destroy him? None of you can provide me an, an answer. In, in a philosophy classroom, they're going to eat your lunch here at this point. They're going like, to mix absolutely no sense. All right? But he doesn't get rid of him. Now, from our understanding, he gets kicked out of heaven. That's the way we usually tell the story, right? And where does he come? Earth. Now, the whole earth, is the whole earth the garden? Doesn't appear so, right? Garden seems to be one central location because they can be kicked out of it, Yes? Right. So he could have come to the earth and run around the earth, and where does God not have to let him into? Who lets him into the garden? Obviously God. Does God know what's going to happen when he enters into the garden? He created Adam and Eve. Did he know what he w- they were going to do before he created him? Yes. I know if you ask these questions in most churches, you like if I was a pastor, I wouldn't have a job by the time church was over. In fact, people would probably be getting up and walking out, which is embarrassing that if I was to say these things in churches, people would get mad and walk out. That's why I, I that just makes me like sick of Christianity because I don't even want to hear it. 
They don't want to hear, or they'll get mad and start trying to give me some answer. It's like any answer you give me is going to be garbage. Don't even try to give an answer. There's no answer here. Okay, so he comes in. They sin. Now, the minute they sin, what could God have done? Could have killed them. Doesn't. Now, we do understand, and we, if you look at the London Baptist Confession of Faith, what they argue is that God is not responsible for sin, and they call it secondary causes. So, okay, yeah, but who, yeah, <laughs> the secondary causes God created, knowing what they're going to do. So I don't know how we get God off the hook here. So what can we say? God didn't commit the sin. He didn't command the sin. He didn't do the sin. But he clearly created a world where he knew sin was going to enter in. And so therefore, what do we have to at least assume to some logical level? That sin somehow played a part of his, which is a messed up concept. But I have no way, I I can't get God, I can't, I can't get around it. I can't get around it. There's no way to get, there's no way to get around it. He didn't do it. But he knew it was going to happen. He didn't. He did nothing to stop it. And even if he allowed it, he could have still stopped it from the. He could have stopped everything with Adam and Eve. I mean, by the time you get to Genesis six, you've got to start thinking your idea was horribly broken. I mean, the whole he destroys the whole world. And then after Genesis six, next thing you know, he's lighting up cities, killing everybody in cities. At some point, you've got to realize, hmm, well, we can't think that God had plan A, because this is the way some Christians, well, you know, God wanted everything to be perfect, and then everything went wrong, so he came up with plan B. Isn't such a loving God who came up with plan B to redeem us? Well, the loving thing was to stop everything from moving forward. And we can, we can dress it up in all the Christianese that we want, and I know Christians will hear this, and I'll get mad, and they'll get furious at me, but... I'm so, I'm so sick of that. Like, if you can't deal with the honesty of the text, we're all about sola scriptura. Well, sola scriptura leaves me with about 900 questions here, right? Like, I don't get it. God's in charge. So guess what we have to acknowledge? And we don't make, and again, just because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. That God created and somehow what was a part of his plan? That's hard to wrap my mind around. Right? Now, this is what Grudem says. Right? We must clearly affirm that God himself did not sin. We can all say amen to that, right? Now, when he says God is not to be blamed for sin, I have a hard time with that because not blamed in the sense that he committed it, but he, he created the entire situation knowing it was going to happen. So sin is here ultimately out of God's decree and, and sovereign plan. There's no way to get around that. Look, look, it, it, you can come up with all your Christian answers and they, they sound good sitting around uh, uh, with a bunch of other Christians drinking coffee and eating donuts, acting like you're all spiritual. Take that garbage to Harvard and walk into a philosophy classroom and see how smart you're going to sound. You're going to get laughed out of the building. They're going to be like, that's the dumbest thing. Because what's your answer going to be? Yeah, God allowed it. That's going to have to be your answer. Right. I'm saying the the typical Christian answer is try to get God off the hook. Well, you know, he gave them free will because he didn't want robots. Well, he gave them free will knowing that the free will would rebel against him. And then he would have to put those people that he gave free will to in hell. 
to suffer for eternity. There's no way. <laughs> How do you? Like, right, exactly. Now, and I, and I, but I, I like the fact that this church, y'all all know what to go to. Just because we don't like it doesn't make it not true. We, we, don't, we don't say it's not true because we don't like it. See, that's the way the lost people handle it. Well, that makes no sense. I don't like it. Remove God. What are you still left with? Okay, well, are you still pain, suffering, death, murder? All those horrible things are still going to happen. But then, do you, can you say those things are morally wrong? Was it legally right for the, the, legally right for, uh, the Germans to exterminate the Jews? Legally, right? Legally, Legally, that was the law of the land. Morally, no. Morally, no. But who makes the moral decision? Without God. So, was it morally wrong? It's only morally wrong if there was a transcendent morality that went beyond the Germans. Was it morally wrong for the United States of America to have laws to enslave human beings? Only if there was a moral law that transcends America. Because legally it was... Right? Legally it was allowed. Legally it was allowed. Abortion is legal. We say it's immoral. Because we have to believe there's a moral, a, a morality that transcends it. That without God you don't have that. So I'm saying we throw out God because it's uncomfortable. We're left with just as many uncomfortable situations. But Christians cannot deny the problem. And so guess what some Christians try to do? Well, God had plan A that wasn't plan A. Because of free will, he came up with plan B. Well, first of all, that denies God knew. And who gave him free will? And again, he could have allowed them to use the free will and could have stopped everything from the word go. But what was the ultimate, what was the ultimate plan? Creation, fall, redemption. For what purpose? Oh, there we go. Now that, we don't like that. What was the original plan? Creation, fall, redemption for God's glory. It's not about us. That makes me mad. Because Christian Radio always tells me it's about me. And Christian Radio never gets anything wrong. Okay, right, here we go. So this is what Grudem says, man. This... This sermon is going to be banned from all Christian websites. Okay, all right, that's okay. First, we must clearly affirm that God himself did not sin, and God is not to be blamed for sin. It was man who sinned, and it was angels who sinned. And in both cases, they did so by willy, willful, voluntary choice. I believe it was willful and voluntary. I, I got no problem with that. Got no problem with that. But God created them knowing they were going to do that. All right. To blame God... Uh, would be blasphemous against the character of God. I, uh, now, it, I, I agree and disagree. I'm not going to blame God for sinning, but I don't believe it's, it's wrong to blame God for creating the situation knowing it was going to happen because that's just fact. That's not blasphemous to state the fact. All right? Okay. Now, but Grudem offers a warning here. On the other hand, we must guard against an opposite error. It would be wrong for us to say there is an eternally existing evil power in the universe similar or equal to God himself in power. This, to say this would to affirm um, uh, what is called an ultimate dualism. Um, uh, this is the idea that in the universe the existence of two equally ultimate powers, one good and the other evil. We don't believe there are two 
eternally existing powers that are equal. We do not believe in dualism. We believe there is only one ultimate power, which is God. Right. So let's keep that there. Also, we must never think that sin surprised God or challenged or overcame his omnipotence or his providential control over the universe. Therefore, even though who must never say that God himself sinned or he is to be blamed for sin, yet we must also affirm, listen, that the God who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, the God who does according to his will and the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Did, listen, did ordain sin, did ordain that sin would come into the world even though he does not delight in it, even though he ordained that it would come about through the voluntary choices of moral creatures. Bottom line, this is very important, God does all things according to his will. So what was ultimately ordained? Sin. So if we were trying to draw a chart, who's ultimately responsible? Who's going to be at the top of the page? God. There's just no way around it. I mean, we can, we can talk all day philosophically. So what do we have to say? God ordained and decreed sin, even though he's opposed to it. He used secondary causes for it to happen so that he's not the one actually carrying it out. However, ultimately, what's, what was God's plan? Let's make sure we state it again. We'll state it again. What was ultimately God's plan? Creation, fall, redemption for God's glory. That's the only answer. Now, do you like it? No. Do I like it? No. But to, to try to come up with some cheesy, garbage Christian answer is just embarrassing. And, 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 and you think, like, you're used to me saying these things, but trust me, we go to another church and say these things and see how long you'll last. Okay? You, you, you'd probably be asked to leave that small group. Okay, or, they'd be, or, they, or you would find yourself on the prayer, prayer list for that church praying for your salvation. Okay, right? <laughs> they'd be praying for your salvation. But salvation doesn't, salvation should not equal dumb. Right? My, if I'm reading my Bible and it tells me all these things about God, then what's my logical conclusion here? What, what we've just come up with. All right? So make sure, and just uh, the, one of the verses, let's just, you may want to write these down as a cross-reference. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, just make sure you have this down. Who? Oh, yeah, yeah. He doesn't say anything I just said. He just says there's two, he just says, hey, there's two errors. We can't blame God, but we don't want to create this idea that there's two equal powers. That's pretty much all Grudem does, yeah. You know, anytime I'm using a book, I go way beyond the, the idea. Ephesians 1.11, everybody there? All right. Here we go. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him, speaking of God, who does what? All things would include what? He worketh all things. Has to, that would have to include the fall, would it not? All right? Now, I know it's hard, like, philosophically to wrap your mind around, well, how can he, how can he ordain it but not be responsible for it? I, I, I have a hard time even knowing how to get around that. 
All I can say is that obviously it was a part of his will. Had to be. Put it this way. Can anything happen on earth that's apart from God's will? Anything that can happen on earth that's not a part of his will would by definition be what? Equal to God or greater than. And they have to be greater than if it's going against the will of God. And then that's a good way of putting it. So, right. So somehow it has to fit in. It has to fit in. Right? I know that's not super popular, but that's okay. All right. Okay. Um, so, um, if we're, so ultimately, how do we want to do this? The origin of sin, if we go with the origin of sin, uh, I, guess we, I guess, and we could go back and we could do a lot of talking about this, but we'll, we'll go here. Well, let's just make sure we settle it this way. The origin of sin, ultimately, I mean, how do we want to word this? I don't want to get into being heretical, but we got to word this correctly. The origin of sin ultimately begins with the will of God. Right? Begins with the will of God. Moves to the free action of Satan and men and women. Right? Because Satan freely chose to sin. Adam and Eve freely chose to sin. They did not have a sinful nature. And then that brought sin into the world. So it begins with the will of God. It ha- Somehow God had to will it. Right? There ha- it has to somehow fit within his will. Or, or, or you're saying that God's sitting there like, no, 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 don't, 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 don't. Oh, man. That's not my plan. I've got to come up with a different plan now. Man. Well, that, that just doesn't make sense. So it's got to start somehow with the will of God that it moves to the free will action of an angelic being and a man and a woman. Now, they are the secondary causes. So did God sin? No. Was he the author of it? Not the author in the sense of doing it. Not in the sense of creating it. But he was the author in the sense of creating everything, knowing it was going to happen. And, and he created people even with the potential of doing it. And people always say, well, he, and, and this is what people always, Christians always love, I love this answer. Well, God w- could not create Adam and Eve without the ability to sin because he wanted them to freely love him. Okay, well, what about the angels? Could he create the angels not to be able to sin? Like, no, he wanted to give them a free will too. Like, like why? Can't, he's not going to redeem them. So, like, even if you get us off the hook, like, well, he had to give me a free will because he wanted me to freely love him. So I wanted the angels to freely love him. Well, I mean, like, so is God that needy for love? Right. That almost like God needed my free will love and he couldn't create a universe where he couldn't get my free will love. Well, why? God lacking something? I thought within the Trinity, they would have perfect companionship and love and unity, Right. So, so like, no matter how we get around it, it's just problematic. All right, so, let, so there's the origin of sin. Let's go to the doctrine of inherited sin. All right, here we go. How does the sin of Adam affect us? How does the sin of Adam affect us? It affects us in two ways. All right, we're only going to focus on one right now. Everybody ready? 
The first way it affects us, right? The first way that it impacts us, the first thing we have to deal with is inherited guilt. Inherited guilt. All right? Inherited guilt. I want you to listen to this carefully. If you get confused, let me know. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? Inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. Paul explains the effects of Adam's sin in the following way. See if these words ring, uh, if you, they sound familiar to you. Therefore, since sin, are, therefore sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all men sinned. Romans 5.12. The context shows that Paul is not talking about actual sins that people commit every day of their lives. For the entire paragraph, Romans 5.12-21, is taken up with a comparison between Adam and Christ. And when Paul says, So, thus, in this way, that is through Adam's sin, death spread to all men because all men sinned, he is saying that through the sin of Adam... All men sinned. This idea that all men sin means that God uh, thought of us all as having sinned when Adam disobeyed. It is further indicated by the next two verses where Paul says, and you can look at Romans 5, 13 through 14, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet... Death reigned from whom? Adam to Moses, even those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What's, the, what's the so important about Romans 5, 13 through 14? The law doesn't come to Moses, but people were still dying and they had not sinned after what? After what Adam did, so how were they dying? They were sinful. How were they sinful? And Adam. They were guilty in Adam. That's, that's the only way to understand death. Death is the best way to prove it. Right? So when people talk about an age of accountability, then if there's an age of accountability, then no one should be able to die before the age of accountability. Therefore, if the child dies, they're accountable and they're guilty. End of story. So whenever you talk to some whacked out Christian out there who believes in some age of accountability, put them in the car, drive to a graveyard, go through all the tombstones and look at all the people who died before their age of accountability and go explain it to me. They can't. Because the theology is defective and illogical and broken and messed up and all the other adjectives I come up with, right? Here Paul points out that from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, people did not have God's written laws. Though, though their sins were not counted as infractions of the law, they still died. The fact that they, have, they died is very good proof that God counted people guilty on the basis of Adam's sin. Yes, it makes perfect sense. The idea that God counted us guilty because of Adam's sin is further affirmed in Romans 5, 18 through 19, where we read these words. Then as, one man, th- then, as one man's trespasses led to condemnation for all men, 
So one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Here Paul explicitly here Paul says explicitly that through the trespass of one man many were made, all right? This is indicative indicating completed past action sinners. We were complete in the past made a sinner. When Adam sinned, God thought of all of all who would descend from Adam as sinners, though we did not yet exist. God, looking into the future and knowing that we would exist, began thinking of us there who were guilty like Adam. This is also consistent with Paul's statement, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Of course, some of us did not even exist when Christ died, but God nevertheless regarded us as sinners in need of salvation. The conclusion to be drawn from these verses in Romans 5, 12-21 is that all members of the human race were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the Garden of Eden. As our representative, Adam sinned and God counted us guilty as well as Adam. A technical term that is sometimes used in the connection is impute, meaning to think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. God counted Adam's guilt as belonging to us, and since God is the ultimate judge of all things in the universe, and since his thoughts are always true, Adam's guilt does in fact belong to us. God rightly imputed Adam's guilt to us. All right, I'll stop right there because there's a lot more we could say. But you get the idea. What's the first way Adam's sin impacted us? Inherited guilt. Inherited guilt. That has nothing to do with a sin nature. That's, That's not speaking of a sinful nature. That means you are guilty before you ever commit an act. Before you ever do anything. Guilty. Guilty. Every baby. Guilty. Guilty where? And Adam. Now, what does that tell us? That I'm going to need something to take care of that guilt, right? And Romans 5 gives us the contrast. Adam made me guilty. How am I made righteous? Now, please understand, if I'm guilty, that's not, that has nothing to do with my nature, has nothing to do with my actions. I'm just guilty before God. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if I'm sinful in, in my nature, doesn't matter if I'm sinful in my actions. I stand before God. Guess what I, I need to hear? Guilty. Because of Adam. Well, guess what? If that's true, then what's the only way to save me? Someone else who's got to come along to declare me not guilty. Declare me righteous. Not because of anything I can do, but what Christ has done for me. And if that is true... If that is true, then salvation at that point point is simply determined by what? God declaring me righteous. That has to be an imputed righteousness. Has to be an imputed righteousness. Because Adam's guilt was imputed. Right? So the Catholic system of infusing me with a righteousness and denying an imputation goes against the very concept of how I ended up guilty. How did I end up guilty? Did, Did Adam's guilt infuse me with guilt? No, I'm imputed. I'm declared guilty. 
And how do we know this? Babies die before they can commit an act. Right? So it's not that they're dying because they were infused with a sinfulness and then they carried it out. No, they were imputed guilt and then they die. Well, then what's the only way I can be saved? Something's got to be imputed to me that has nothing to do with my nature or my actions. And if that is true, then what's the moment that I am declared righteous because of an imputed righteousness that is not my own, that I gain by faith, can I lose that salvation? Is it determined by what we do? No, because I'm perfectly righteous. How? How was I perfectly guilty? You can go right now. We can go to the nursery and get Lincoln and Levi and go, you're guilty, 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 guilty. Well, I haven't done that. No, you're, you're, Lincoln is as guilty as a person sitting in prison right now who's committed murder and rape. Now, nobody likes that, but it's the case. And Adam. Now, there's practical sins, but whether the practical sins ever occur, guess how guilty uh, uh, Lincoln and Levi is? Do you get more guilt? Do you get less guilt? They're guilty. We don't like that, do we? Well, guess what? We don't like how it started, and we don't like how we ended up guilty because we didn't develop this system. In fact, in some ways, I kind of like the way the system is because the system goes against any idea. Any man writing this would not write such a weird system. What man would write a system like this? Hey, we're all guilty. By doing what? Not a thing. Being born. How guilty? Completely guilty. What does that guilt uh, deserve? Hell. Hell. Well, that seems a little unfair. Well, there's a solution. Okay, tell me what I need to do. Well, there's the problem. You can't do anything. Why? Well, did you do anything to get the guilt? Well, then you're going to to require something else that's going to give you something better than guilt, which is a perfect righteousness. So what did Adam's sin do for us? Inherited guilt. I want to make sure everyone says, what did Adam's sin do for us? Inherited guilt. That has nothing to do, please note, that says nothing about your nature. That says nothing about your actions. Don't confuse inherited guilt with uh, other concepts. Inherited guilt is just you are guilty. Nothing to do with an action, nothing to do with a nature. Somebody got that? That's the first thing that it does, and we'll have to come back and, and, and work on this. We'll probably work on this tonight. We need to go to Proverbs, but we'll... We need, I don't know, we, we may go to Proverbs tonight. Who knows? Well, we need to do imitation of Christ tonight. I don't know. We need like four, we need about eight sermons today, okay? So. We're, he's getting ready to get into that. We'll see what, how he handles that. That's a good question for those who didn't hear. She asked, should we call that original sin? Does original sin mean, refer to original sin as we're originally guilty, we're guilty in Adam? And that's the original sin that we inherit is guilt? Or does it apply to the nature? That's, we're going to leave right now just an inherited guilt. All right, we'll stop right there. So much I want to review, but we can't. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, some very tough, tough, tough concepts. I know that this will offend so many people who will hear, but Lord, we, we cannot change the Bible and change the truth of how everything began simply to try to make us feel better or to try to, uh, for us to somehow protect your name. 
We just have to acknowledge what has been revealed, acknowledge what is true of your attributes, and try to wrap our mind around it. I pray that you would always allow us to pursue truth, even when it's uncomfortable, even when we don't like it, because if we're not pursuing truth, then there's no really need for even being here. And I just pray you will never let us stop doing just that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,